Okay, First Thessalonians chapter 2. So I'm going to read from verse 1. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. So this is the highlight of this second chapter of the letter to the Thessalonians. Paul is highlighting that his coming to them was a fruitful coming, right? which we saw in the first chapter of the book. And what we're considering as we look at this chapter and the next one is, what is it that makes for fruitful ministry? Or you can say, what are the marks of true ministry? So Paul tells us that his efforts were not in vain. He didn't just preach up good sermons. He didn't just win arguments. But rather, there was a marked fruitfulness, right? Which was the basis upon which he was even writing to this church afterwards. So everything we're going to read subsequently is Paul highlighting to us by, by his defense against some of the accusations that came against him. This defense highlights to us what it takes to build and to have a fruitful ministry. From verse 2 to verse 4, But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but as pleasing God, who tests our hearts. So we see in these um, three verses that the first mark of true ministry is stewardship. Paul said that we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Everyone who would um, run any kind of ministry needs to arrive at this realization that the ministry is a great trust that God gives us and he entrusts us with the simplicity of the gospel. The gospel is sometimes too simple right, for the average intellectual mind that it is easy and it is possible to become ashamed of it. It's possible to try to uh, make it more complicated than it actually is. It's possible to try to sound more appealing to the average man with the gospel. But all of those attempts to dilute the gospel, to dress it up a little bit in order for it to minister right, to the thinking of our current age, is a sign, a marks of unfaithfulness in what God has called us to do. Right? And so Paul tells us that he was entrusted and he didn't put the approval of men, which is one of the big things that every natural human faces when you stand to speak before men. You're always checking, is what I'm saying making sense, right? What, what do they think of me? How do they think about me? Paul had told us earlier in Galatians chapter 1 that if he was seeking to please men, then he would have been in the wrong calling, right? In the wrong business, as it were. Because the gospel, far from pleasing men, the gospel actually offends men. It offends my sense of pride. It offends my sense of independence. 
it offends my refusal to come face to face with the moral problems in my life and the and the reality of judgment that waits at the end of life if I do not face those moral problems. The gospel essentially brings out everything that man tries to forget or ignore and brings it to the fore and insists that the fact that we may overlook these things does not mean that God overlooks them and presents the good news that God has made a provision in Christ and also presents the good news that because of the resurrection of Christ, each of us retains the same hope of resurrection, the hope that our bodies will be changed, the hope that death is not the end, and that in fact any suffering that we have to go through in this world is only permitted because this world is a shadow of the one to come. For the Christian, the best is yet to come. Presenting such a message can, can sound um, utopian or implausible or completely um, can, can sound like a relief mechanism, if you like, to many people. And that's one of the reasons why it is possible to not, to not steward the blessedness of the gospel the way that we ought to. But here Paul said that even though we were spitefully treated, at Philippi, in the face of persecution. We know what had happened to him and Silas in Philippi. Paul had cast out the demon from the girl that was making a fortune for her, for her slave owners, right, by her fortune telling. And they were upset with him and they threw him and Silas to the council and from the council into prison. And then later, um, the people who cast them into prison realized that they were Roman citizens and that they didn't have to scourge them and throw them into prison without trial and beg them to leave Philippi. So they didn't leave Philippi on a high, even though they had introduced the gospel. And the gospel, because it is offensive, even the demonstration of the power of God in the casting out of that spirit of divination from, from, from the young girl, even that demonstration of power, right, which you would celebrate as a wonderful sign that what these men are preaching is true, even that provoked intense persecution. So when they came to Thessaloniki, they could have been forgiven for throwing some kind of a pity party, you know, for just, you know, spending the whole time detailing their sufferings and sighing and receiving comfort and shelter and trying to recuperate. But there was a trust that was given into their hands. And this is a trust of the gospel. right? So even in the face of persecution, even in the face of much conflict, they spoke the gospel. And now because they were trusted with the gospel, they also spoke the gospel in truth and not out of deceit. Like, like we said earlier, not to please men, not to say what men will find acceptable but rather to say only what God has approved. And you see, what God has approved about the gospel is not complicated. God has concluded that all have sinned and fallen short of his glory. That the world, as we have it today, the reason why it is the way it is, is because it has been downgraded. It is operating from a downgraded possibility. And the reason for this is because of sin. This is the judgment of God. This is the 
This is the message that God has approved. However, that because of the love of God, rather than wiping out the human race, right, and doing away with all of us, God found a way. God found a way to satisfy his love and to satisfy the claims of divine justice by offering himself on the cross for us so that through his through the righteousness through the blood through the sacrifice of jesus we can have eternal life and it doesn't matter um, it doesn't matter how good right our life is on earth it doesn't matter how much we cling on to the sense of life in this moment each of us has an appointment with death right each of us and because of that appointment with death which is a problem that humanity has not solved each of us has a longing deep within us for eternal life each of us has a longing for that quality of life that transcends time and that transcends also the uncertainties and the difficulties of time and that is the life that god offers us through the gospel this is the message that god has approved for the gospel and the first mark of true ministry is that this message of who we are outside of the grace of God and who God is in his sovereignty right is at the heart of what it means to have a true ministry verse 5 says for neither at any time so verse 5 to verse 6 shows us the second mark of true ministry the first was their faithfulness to the gospel their stewardship of the gospel and verse 5 to 6 shows us the second quality. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. So the second element of true ministry of authentic ministry that we see here is the element of character he says in verse 5 that we did not use flattering words and you know it's important for us to um, understand why god hates flattering throughout the scripture so much right because the business and the ministry of the gospel is about truth and god knows and insists that only the truth can bring men to freedom right you see faith in god right is not accessible to the natural person if faith was easily accessible to the natural person most many more people would believe in god and that's why even in the face of compelling evidence right of the power of god of the fidelity of god of the majesty of god as displayed in creation as the, as displayed in his wonders that are often seen you know from time to time even in the face of all of these evidences it is not possible for a natural person to come into faith a natural person might be convinced by the arguments but for a natural person to come into faith a certain blindness has to be taken from their eyes there is a blindness that being human inherently places upon us and that is the blindness of thinking that our lives is defined and restricted to everything that our physical senses can touch and interact with. And it is this natural blindness that the 
God of this world, as Paul calls him, which is the devil, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it is this natural blindness that the God of this world plays upon to convince us that we are enough, that, that we are sufficient in ourselves, right? That our misery, for example, is proof that there is no God. And if we are doing well, that our ability to make hay for ourselves, right, to forge a path for ourselves, is proof that we do not really need God. It's only when disaster strikes, usually, when God allows suffering into the world, or when things come that we happen that we cannot explain with, with mere rationality, that no amount of data points, right, can can lead us into any form of clarity. It is only these kind of things that begin to make us ponder and begin to make us consider that is there something more, right, after, apart from life. I don't know if you've had an experience in your life before that made you think, is there more to life, right, than just what we see, right? It's life much more than eating food and 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 you know having friends and getting married and making children and growing up and growing old and then the cycle continues or is there more there is a natural and a spiritual blindness that has come upon men so that faith in god is not accessible it's not available to the average person now the only way the only way that god hopes and intends to pull down that blindness is by the ministry of truth. And that is why Paul calls the church the ground and the pillar of truth. And so what flattery does, flattery is an avoidance of truth, right? And not only an avoidance of truth, a, a perversion of it. Flattery is concocted when men are, when pleasing men rather, becomes more important to us, becomes more, more of a fixed goal than pleasing God. You see, the only hope that men have to know the gospel, for their eyes to be open, is to hear the truth, even when it's painful, even when it contradicts what I really want to believe, then flattery is the enemy of the gospel. Right? You see, when you go to the hospital and you are in front of a doctor, <laughs> what you want at that point is not a word of encouragement. You didn't go there for a word of encouragement. You didn't go there for the doctor to flatter you about your condition. What you're there for is for a thorough appraisal, an appraisal that will make you realize, oh, this is what I'm doing right this is what I'm doing wrong. These are the steps I need to take. These are the steps I don't need to take. If I love life so much and I want to continue living in a healthy way and not be a burden to those around me. And that is what God has entrusted to us in the gospel. Right? And part of what makes it possible or even sometimes easy for us to walk in flattery is when there is some kind of compromise in our lives. Compromise is such, is such a, an important thing to God because it weakens the strength of our conviction. It is impossible for us to, to insist on truth as it deserves to be insisted on when 
when we ourselves are not submitted to that word of truth in our own lives, it is impossible. And even if we manage to find the words, our words, even if they are saying one thing, they will lack that spiritual element of conviction that which only can produce life in other people because there is significant compromise in our own lives. But Paul says that we did not use flattering words. And each of us needs to trust God to bring us to the place where we are stable enough in our mindset, in our thinking, in our feeling, in our relationship to people, that we don't have any relationship that is built on flattery. Right? That we are open enough to hear the truth from people and to speak the truth. Right? And then Paul tells us that we also do not use a cloak of covetousness. We said when we did the book of Second Peter chapter 2, I believe, that you know, Satan, the way Satan advances deception into the church and into the life of believers is privately, like Peter called it, or subtly. And the way he comes in subtly is that he appeals to a desire. He appeals to something that we crave. And on account of something that we want, right, we are then often willing to sometimes avoid the truth, ignore the truth, bend the truth, right, in order to get what we want. But Paul says that the foundation of that fruitfulness, you see, if we want to see the same kind of fruitfulness that Paul saw in his ministry, then we also need to apply the same consecrations that Paul had. He said, in my life there was truth. In my life there was character. There was no covetousness. We did not see glory from men. We didn't even see glory from you. Right? We wanted to ensure that there was nothing in us that would make you to stumble. And God honored that position. God honored that position by the great fruit that we saw in Thessaloniki. Now, as we read on, you will see that these two qualities, how these two qualities were further exemplified by Paul in his ministry to the Thessalonians, right? It was the stewardship of Paul towards the gospel, right? The sense of sacredness with which he brought to the gospel and then the character, the power of godliness that was present in his own life that contributed to the conviction that birthed this church and to the foundation upon which they began to grow. So in verse 7, he tells us that we, but we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children, so affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. So Paul tells us about the faithfulness of a mother the stewardship of a mother. So you can say that this is the example of the first mark of true ministry. It says we were gentle among you, just as a, as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. And a big part of the faithfulness of the gospel of, of, of the gospel is not only that we are faithful in dispensing the cerebral knowledge of the truth of the gospel, but that we are faithful 
in also putting our lives on the line as worthy living examples, right? As vulnerable examples of the gospel. Look at the language that Paul uses here. He says, we were affectionately longing for you. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives. So we see the language of, of longing, the language of sharing their own lives, of, of showing their own wounds, of bringing stories from their own experiences, right? of loving the church with a faithfulness, presenting their own struggles, and ensuring that the church could see in them a people that they could trust. Verse 9 says, For he remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the gospel. Paul's preaching of the gospel was backed up by a sincere and honest labor. See, this is, interesting. This is an interesting aspect of the ministry of Paul, that the way he saw it, the labor he did, which we might call our career today, the labor he did was not dissociated from his efforts in preaching the gospel. As far as he was concerned, the gospel was going to prosper more if the church was not always thinking about financial packages for him. Of course, he mentioned very clearly that this would have been in order if he had decided to live like that. But rather, he found out that there that their faith was going to be strengthened much more and the work was going to be free from the burden of you know, financial implications if he labored with his own hands as a tent maker, as he did in Thessaloniki and later in Corinth as well. If he labored with his own hands and he worked hard so that he can provide for himself and provide for the church rather than becoming a burden for them. Right, so that they could enjoy the benefits of the gospel. This is part of what it means, friends, to be faithful to the gospel. And each of us who labors in our career, in industry, in something outside of church labor, you know, must recalibrate that labor and ask ourselves, why are we laboring? To what end are we laboring? And trust God that our labor must be gospel-centered, gospel-focused. That we are laboring so that the church of God can advance. Because we know that through our labors, right, God is bringing finances into the church. Through our labors, God is um, making the church stronger. That through our labors, God is um, having a voice, a, a representative, having salt and light in places where there would otherwise not be an entrance for the gospel which is our workplaces. That's the right light in which to see our labors. The wrong light in which to see our labors is to see them as competing with our commitment to the gospel, right? Or to see them as exclusive to our commitment to the gospel so that we think, oh, I need to work less so I can commit more to the gospel. No, God wants us to have a holistic view and to... And for some of us, he calls us to take up the burden of both preaching the gospel and also laboring in our careers and in our everyday lives. Now, verse 10, Paul begins to highlight the example 
of from the standing begins i like the example of the second mark of authentic ministry right we've identified two so far the first is stewardship and faithfulness which is exemplified by a nursing mother and the laboring of paul in faithfulness and now we see the example of character the stand says you are witnesses and god also how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children that you would walk worthy of god who calls you into his own kingdom and glory so the character of faithfulness the character of a mother is often the character of nurturing encouraging and building up right but here we see the strength of character right or the strength of morals that is often exemplified by the father of course not that these roles cannot overlap right the father can also nurture but that role comes more naturally to the mother and the same goes for for the moral strength of character in the home he says that as a father does for his own children we exhorted you right we comforted you and we charged every one of you the reason why he was able to comfort he was able to exhort and he was able to charge and all of these words are referring to the different layers of what the word of god does in us the word of god shows us what is right it shows us what is not right it shows us how to get right it shows us how to step away from the wrong it exhorts us it encourages us but it also corrects us instructs us charges us the reason that paul could stand in such a strength of character was that he was devote he was devo- he was devoted and just and blameless in his own character you see nothing destroys the stewardship of the gospel quicker than blemish on the character right of the people to whom god has entrusted the gospel the bible says that satan is an accuser right first peter chapter 5 verse 8 peter says um be sober be vigilant for your accuser the enemy right he rose like a roaring lion going to and fro looking for whom to devour so the believers we believers and especially those who stand at the forefront of the gospel you and i who set up our lives to be witnesses for god in the spaces where god has planted us we have an accuser and what the accuser is looking for is ground upon which to discredit the gospel you see and so that means that each of us needs to trust need to trust god right that our lives will be blameless because it is that blameless life that continues to give us an authority both spiritually and naturally amongst men to proclaim the gospel with boldness and to set an example that many are willing and happy to follow now if we are going to walk blamelessly one of the anchors of a blameless life is a commitment to a life of devotion 
there must be a space in our lives where we meet with God. Not, not as a religious exercise, but as a place where the presence of God finds us. Now, in that place, we are not supposed to go there when we are tired, when we are distracted. We are supposed to go there when our full attention right, is present. It's in that place where God corrects us. I always say that if, you walk, if you're walking with God and He never corrects you for a whole week, hmm, it's a sign that something is wrong in that walk. And if you don't realize it in that first week, down the line you're just going to realize that it's as though the presence of God is far. It's as though the place of prayer is no longer sweet or, or, or enjoyable. It's as though the spiritual life is a very difficult life to engage in. The reason for that is that if we, as we draw near to God and as we walk in the light, even as God is in the light, we are going to find that we have so many flaws in, in ourselves. And when I'm, even, when I'm saying flaws, I'm not necessarily referring to what you might call more obvious sins, right? Because one tendency that we have is to look at ourselves and say, oh, I'm not doing any of the major stuff. You know, that is often associated with sin or rebellion or evil. So, I'm good. But when you come to the light of God in the place of devotion, he begins to show you blemishes. So, the fact that Paul says I'm blameless does not mean that he was, he never made a mistake. But he meant that he maintained, he gave priority to a life of devotion a life of fellowship and allowed God to use that place to correct him. So that at the end of the day, his testimony could stand that he was blameless in character. Friends, this is a burden that is on the heart of God for us as Christians in the end times, for us as Christians, right, of this generation. Because I was reading recently and I found out that it's as though that almost everybody, or not everybody, but most men, of the past generation that God placed an anointing on, that God endowed with so much grace. There was always something. At the end of the day, Satan found a ground of accusation upon which to hold against them that completely, in many cases, limited the purity, the fruitfulness, the effectiveness of the thing that God had committed into their hands. You see, the enemy is not concerned or he's not so troubled that we prosper, actually. Yes, he's not so concerned that our ministry grows and becomes big. All he's after is that the purity, the purity of what we are carrying, of what we are ministering to others is contaminated and is corrupted. Once he's able to do this, he doesn't mind even helping us prosper, helping us increase in our numbers, because all of our worship will be unacceptable to our holy God. And if we continue long enough in that state, even God himself will begin to fight us at some point when we have exhausted his mercy. Right? But Paul says that you are witnesses and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves amongst you. And it's my prayer, it's a cry of my heart, that this will be our story, this will be our testimony in every place where the Lord plants us, in every season where He plants us, that by His grace, we will be 
also blameless in our character, flawless in our character, to his glory. To his glory. The reason why God demands flawlessness in character is because he has called us. He has called us. That's what verse 12 says, that you would work worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. God has called you, has called you and I to wield the authority of his kingdom, to manifest the brightness, the beauty of his glory. And you see, everything that happens in the kingdom of God, everything that the glory of God is about, is consistent with the character of God. And that is why God cares a lot about our commitment to character. So now verse 13 to verse 16 says, For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. And they do not please God and are contrary to our men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Now Paul shows us the third mark of true Christianity, the third mark of authentic ministry, and that is the mark of suffering. The only reason this Paul and these Thessalonians suffered, the only reason they suffered, they didn't suffer because of their lack of faith. They didn't suffer because of their lack of love. Even though it's possible to suffer because of these things, but that was not why this church suffered. They suffered because they received the word of God. And they welcomed it. Right? And the word of God began to work effectively in them. Remember that in the parable of the sower, Jesus told us that the parable of the sower is the parable that unlocks all the other parables. And if we pay attention to the lessons of that parable, we are going to be able to interpret most things about the kingdom and most things about the gospel correctly. Right? Remember that the seed fell on four different kinds of grounds. It fell by the wayside, right? It fell upon um, rocky places, right? It, and in those rocky places, it didn't have root in itself and it sprang up. But the moment, right, that the sun came up and the sun there represents trials. Well, let's look at it in more detail. Matthew chapter 13. Let's look at Jesus' parable of the sower. So, Jesus is explaining the parable of the sower. He says in verse 20 of Matthew 13, But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet, he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbled. 
Now, there are a few things to note here. First, Jesus said that when tribulation or persecution arises, that the, the coming of tribulation and persecution in the life of a believer, especially one who has received the word of God and who has begun to prosper from the word of God, the coming of tribulation and persecution, it's a matter of when and not if. Friends, I wish it was not like this. But this is the Lord himself. Now, it's interesting to know why the tribulation comes. The Bible says that tribulation and persecution comes because of the word. Because of the word. And that's why there's often a waiting season in our lives. There's often a season when we don't understand, is God, did God still hear our prayers? Does, does he still see me? Am I still in the picture? Right. Jesus is unveiling the back end and telling us that the reason for all of that is because of the word. That the seed of the word of God in your life, in my life, carries with it so much potential, right, that it inevitably attracts opposition. Right. So this church, they mark parts of the mark of their authenticity, right, part of the proof that they had received the true gospel, the precious gospel, the gospel that indeed leads to eternal life, right, was that they suffered the same things of their own countrymen. Yes, because if it is true that we are holding on to truth and we are holding on to truth in a world that, that is distorted, in a world that lacks a connection to the true reality, then it is also true that we will bump into many things. We will bump into people who do not feel or think or believe the same way and we have to endure holding on to our values, holding on to truth, holding on to the word of the Lord. We will bump into difficulties, some of them orchestrated by the enemy just to make us lose our confidence in what God has said to us. But every challenge, rather than the suffering that we face being a sign that God has left us. It is the proof of the preciousness of our faith. Yes, the mark, third mark of every true ministry, of every true conversion, of every true work of faith, is that it is marked with suffering. But there's a reason that suffering is worth it. And that is the fourth mark that we see of true ministry. In verse 17 to 20. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, or joy, or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you? in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming, for you are our glory and joy. The fourth mark of enduring and true and authentic ministry and authentic com conversion is that it is founded on the secure foundation of eternity. There is no Christian who is going to last who is not rooted in the hope of our salvation. The hope of our salvation is not the hope of a breakthrough. The hope of our salvation is not the hope of a better life. It's not that we will not have breakthroughs. We will have breakthroughs. 
It's not that God does not intend to make our lives better. He definitely intends to do that. But none of that is the hope of our salvation. So that in case we don't see breakthroughs, it does not bring our salvation into, into the question or into disrepute. The hope of our salvation is in the return of Christ. And that's why this, this letter of 1 Thessalonians, practically every chapter of this letter ends with a reminder. Because a reminder that Jesus will return. And that we need to measure every commitment we make, every judgment we pass, every decision we take against the reality that the Lord will return. Paul founded the work he did in Thessaloniki on the secure grounds of eternity. He kept using it as a reference point. If the gospel is true, it means that if you are a believer, the best, the best is yet to come. Thank God for the healings that we face, that we have on earth. Thank, thank God for the divine health that we experience. Thank God for the breakthroughs that we experience. Thank you for, thank God for the victories over darkness that we experience. And we say, Amen to more of that. But none of that is our hope. If it is true what the gospel promises, then for every believer, the best is yet to come. Paul says, for what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For you are our joy, our glory and our joy. Now, he was not saying here that um, the Thessalonians were the foundation of his faith, right? Because the foundation of our faith is in the person and the work of Christ, right? His atonement, his sacrifice, his righteousness. That's the foundation of our hope. He is our joy. And seeing his face is our ultimate crown. But Paul was saying that there is something about leading others to Jesus, right? that is going to bring immeasurable joy, that is going to make us realize that we invested our time on earth rightly. That the people that the Lord has committed to us to nurture, to strengthen, that there is going to be an irreplaceable joy, a joy unspeakable, when we stand with those same people whom by the grace of God our lives led onto the path of salvation. Now, the broader context of First Thessalonians is that Paul is writing to his spiritual children, right? And what we've been reading is what it takes not only to birth spiritual children, but to grow spiritual children, to mature them. And each of us should trust the Lord that, first of all, he will connect us to those who will be examples to us, whose faith, whose love, whose hope, will be a beacon that we can hold on to, that can stabilize us, that can nourish us, that can comfort, encourage, correct us. And that we also will become an example, that we will fix our eyes on the real price of eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul continues in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 by expressing his concern for this church. He says, therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith, 
that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened. And you know, for this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. So here Paul is saying that it's not just enough that a church or a, or a believer is born. It's not even just enough that the believer begins to grow. An extra layer of establishing right, needs to happen to a church, to a believer, to a person in order for them to be completely secure from the tricks of the enemy. Because you see, Satan is more ancient than the most ancient believer. Right? He is more experienced. He has many tricks, many subtle schemes, right? Whether it is true indirect opposition or direct opposition, he has many schemes by which he can lure and seduce and entice God's people away from the path of truth. And so there is a work of establishing establishing and establishing speaks about building again and again on the right foundations and mixing that that building work with a lot of prayer that is what paul sent timothy to do remember that from from thessaloniki paul had gone down to berea 40 miles to be about 40 miles to berea and also had a great entrance there just like he did in thessaloniki by the power of god but the unbelieving jews from thessaloniki followed him down to berea and he had to leave berea and go down to athens where he preached the gospel at areopagus and he was laughed to scorn but some people believed and followed him but the people who believed were not sufficient to form a church so he moved on to corinth and at this time, he had decided, he was writing this letter as at the time when he was in Athens. And he had decided not to return to Thessaloniki for the safety of the believers there. And he says, I was very eager to hear about your faith, to ensure that you were established. Now, it's interesting to us that if believers who were, who were already commended for their faith, for their love, for their hope, needed to be established how much more us and paul says he sent timothy so if you want to know the content what it is that paul told timothy what it is that paul encouraged timothy to to introduce into the church to establish them then it's a, it's a good thing to take time and study the book of first timothy the books of first first and second timothy paul the summary of those letters is that Paul was essentially saying to them, as the persecution gets tougher, intensify. Yes. Stir up the gift of God that is in you. Pay attention to sound doctrine. Right? The truths that have been established in you, plus the gifts that have been laid upon you, don't be passive about them. Stir them up. If you do not grow, if you do not grow, if you do not insist that you will be established, that you will become strong, then it's possible that you will regress. 
a summary of that book, in my own opinion, of those books to Timothy was intensified. And by the grace of God, next year, we'll be studying those letters in great detail as intensify is our is a theme that God has laid upon our hearts for next year. And so that's how the church is established. That the things that are most surely believed believed amongst us, the things that we have become convinced about, we we intensify in in putting them to practice, in making sure that we lay hold of them. Yes. Until they begin to transform us even more and more into the people that God wants us to be. Verse 6 to 10 says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us, as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you, for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before God, night and day, praying exceeding, exceedingly, that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. This is what you might call the fifth mark, the fifth mark of authentic ministry. There was a deep and genuine concern for their faith. I don't know if you could count how many times Paul referenced your faith, your faith, your faith, because that is the thing that is most precious. That is the thing that the enemy comes after to pollute your faith, to discourage you from your faith, to dissuade you from your faith, because his own faith has been sealed in eternal punishment. And so his only job is to ensure that those whom, upon whom the light of God has, have, has shined do not experience the full profit from that shining of the light of God. And so knowing that the enemy comes after the fate of God's people, one of the true marks of, of, one of, the marks of true ministry, one of the ingredients for establishing a person, a church, Right, in a way that they would stand fast in that which God has proclaimed, is to be genuinely concerned for their faith. Yes, it's, it's important for us when we exchange pleasantries and catch up with friends, not only to ask about how have you been, how is work, how is family, how is finances, but ask about your faith. Where has your faith been? Because everything that Satan throws at people Everything that life throws at people is aimed at destroying that faith. You see, the permutation of salvation from God's perspective is not complete if man does not exercise faith. And it happens to be that faith is not just a noun, right? That happens to us once and for all. Faith is a verb that we have to keep exercising from first to last. That's what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, first to the Jews and then to the Greek. For in the gospel, a righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. 
The only way you and I became just is by faith. It is by faith that we laid hold of the promise of God and appropriated it for ourselves. And that's what makes us the just. And now that we are the just, the only way to live in the face of our errors, in the face of our mistakes, in the face of our trials, in the face of our difficulties, the only way to live is by faith. It is by faith that we draw grace, that we come boldly to the throne of grace and obtain grace for when we need it the most. It is by faith that we stand. It is by faith that we lay hold on the promises of God. It is by faith that we take new grounds for God. It is by faith that we withstand the attempts of the enemy to retake the grounds that God has given to us. It is by faith. And so Paul's concern was for their faith. Now in verse 10, Paul had said that he was praying exceedingly to see them, to perfect what is lacking in their faith. But it turns out that God did not answer that prayer in the way that Paul was expecting that it to be answered. You know, many times we think that, okay, this is the thing that's going to strengthen my faith if I see this man of God or if I talk to this person, right? But by preventing us from doing those things, God is inviting us to press into the reality of who he is. God is deliberately allowing us to be stretched so that we can find more of him, so that we can get to know him for ourselves, for who he is. And the sixth mark of true ministry is what Paul did for them day and night. He prayed for them. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. He prayed for them exceedingly. He prayed for them night and day. And the content of his prayer, just like the content of his prayer for all the other churches, was not so much that all their problems would be solved. No, his, the content of his prayer was that they would increase and abound in love. <laughs> that in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the contradictions, there will be a sign and a wonder that the suffering, the difficulties, the contradictions will not make them bitter, will not make them cold and isolated, but will make them full of love. That the very thing that was supposed to defeat their faith will turn them away from bitterness, will turn them away from hatred, and will make them full of love. Yes. That Satan will have no other recourse but to leave them alone. Because every, every fiery dart, every arrow contributed to making them more pure, more holy, more loving, more devoted, more committed to God. The reason Paul prays that the church will increase and abound in love is that if, if we can love each other, you know, in the, in the realm of the physical, we are many denominations, right? You have your church, I have my church, we are split by territories. We are, we are also split by mandate in the realm of the physical. 
But in the realm of the spiritual, we are one mystical church. My prayer can affect your prayer. My commitment to godliness can affect your commitment to godliness. The same way that my compromise can affect your compromise, my prayerlessness can affect you also. And so if we increase in love, if we ignore the offenses, ignore the imperfections, deny them the chance to control our responses, and instead insisting on keeping the Lord's command that we love one another, then God will begin to walk mystically in our midst. Yes. That is the mode in which the church is most powerful when we truly love one another. The love that drives us to prayer. The love that drives our prayer, our concern, our giving towards one another. And that is my prayer as well. And this is one of the things that difficulty on earth does for us. Verse 13 says, So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God. It makes us expectant. Like we said, if the gospel is true for the Christian, the best is yet to come. And everything we face on earth that contradicts what we know in God or what we know God, God is, is only a reminder that this world is not the end. Yes, it's only a motivation to purify our lives and to start so that we can be established and stand blameless before God in the day when he comes. And I pray that these marks of true ministry will be found in our lives and in all our labors. Yes, that we will be stewards, faithful stewards who will nurture and encourage that we will be flawless and blameless in character that we will endure suffering, that we will embrace it for the sake of the gospel, that we will be focused on eternity, that we will have eternity in our rear view and in our front view at all times, that we will compare everything and weigh everything against the value of eternity. Yes, that we will be full of concern, of love for the fate of our brothers and our sisters. And that we will always be praying. And that through prayer, the Lord will turn around everything, everything for our good, even as he promised in his word. And so, Father, we pray for this, Lord, that you make us effective tools, instruments in your hands. A people who know how to endure. A people who know how to stand. A people who are established in everything that you have for us, Lord. A people who are burning in love, in prayer, in concern. A people who are flawless in character, who are faithful to the gospel, to the truth that you have committed to us. It is not by power or by might, but by your spirit. So I, so I pray that you equip us, enable us, strengthen us with your grace. That each and every one of us will stand and will only get stronger to the very end. Praise you, Lord Jesus. Take all the glory. In the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.